0: I remember going to the state fair down in Salem, and I'd be enjoying the fair, but there would be at the back of my mind this lingering depression of what it, this meant. My summer's over, school has begun, here we go, nine months, right? Some of you get it, some of you understand. With holidays, a lot of us are gone, some of, a lot of people today are gone on vacation, one last shot at summer, and we also have a lot of visitors on these different holidays, so I like to meet people, and so I came in this morning, and I introduced myself to an individual towards the back, a gentleman, and he said, you recognize me. Now, you know, that's hard, right? So he said, Safeway, nothing. I'm thinking maybe he works at Safeway. Maybe, you know, he's the guy that does vegetables and I've, or che- runs the checks. I don't know. Safeway. Then he said Papa Murphy's. And then it was like this light bulb went on. I don't know if you remember about a month ago in my sermon, I used an illustration of myself backing into someone at Papa Murphy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So his name is Andy. I actually backed into his wife, Marilyn. So I backed into Marilyn, and she was so gracious. I got out of the truck. I had obliterated her passenger side door. And so I get out of my truck thinking I'm going to face her wrath, and rightly so. And I, used, I think the illustration I used then was the excuse thing. I had excuses, but then I realized I have no excuse. This is totally my fault. I am at fault here, 100%. But she was so gracious, and then she said to me, my husband, we live close, and my husband will be here in just a little bit. And I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) So I survived the wrath (laughs) of Marilyn, but now I gotta face the husband? (laughs) So her husband, Andy, showed up. And it was a very special time because both of them are believers. And Andy, we got to talking, and Andy is here this morning. I'm not going to embarrass him by pointing him out, but it was so good to talk. And when we were talking, as I was jotting down my insurance information for his wife, um, he said, I want to I write down something for you to remember. And so he, he just kind of scrolled on a piece of paper these letters, L-S-M-T-P-Y-W-M-T-S-T. And I went, hmm? And here's what that means. Lord, send me the people you want me to see today. Isn't that great? Lord, send me the people you want me to see today. There it is, God's up to something. God sends us people every day and sometimes we don't recognize it as that when in reality it is that. And God is putting people in our pathway. Some of them are brothers and sisters in Christ and we celebrate together. Some of them have no clue of who God is at all and we're there to tell them about God, to be a light, right? So, Andy, welcome, glad you could be with us and uh, I'll remember your face next time, I promise. I'll do a better job. So we're ending Psalms today and then we're gonna be jumping into the book of Acts. Completely different books. Acts is a book of narrative and a grand story of what God did with his church and the spread of the gospel. But Psalms, I hope that you've enjoyed our trip. It's been short and sweet, it feels like to me. It's gone fast. But the thing I love about Psalms is I think Psalms helps our hearts catch up to our heads. What do I mean by that? I think sometimes we know biblical truth. We know God is good. We know God is sovereign. We know God is in control. We know God's grace is there in my life. But sometimes our hearts, our emotions, lag behind. And I believe that Psalms gives us permission in the Lament Psalms to bring our hearts, our feelings, our emotions to an all-knowing God, an all-sovereign God, and allows our heart in those times of lament and deep tragedy and difficulty in our life, it allows our heart to catch up to our head, to under- catch up to our understanding of what we know of God who we know God to be and sometimes there is that lag so i hope you've enjoyed the trip through psalms and i hope that as we move into acts that you continue to read psalms because i think a daily dose of that great book is helpful you know again it's it's god where are you god i need you right now and there's just that crying out element that you see with david so psalm 61 let's read verse First two verses. This is going to sound very similar, very familiar to us. Here's what he says. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Man, that's a beautiful verse. The rock... That is higher than I. I love that. Hear my cry. Listen to my prayer, God. You know, in one sense, God hears our prayers. We know that. He's God. But there's a second sense, maybe, in that maybe God doesn't respond, or at least doesn't respond in the way that we want to our prayers. Jesus spoke of this in the New Testament with with the Pharisees, they were hypocritical. And he said of them, you feel like God's hearing you because you have so many words. You pray these incredibly elaborate, long, lengthy prayers, but your heart's not in it. You mean nothing, it's hypocritical. So God's not listening. So yeah, God hears you, but sometimes God isn't listening because maybe we're praying with the wrong motives or we're praying with the wrong heart. So." Hear my cry, Lord. Listen to my prayer. I'm out here, the ends of the earth. Now, where was David? We don't know. It doesn't tell us in the heading. Like normally we've been in the headings, there's been a giving us a, a, a reference back into First or 2 Samuel of where David is, what's going on in his life. We don't have anything like that here with Psalm 61. We don't know where he was at geographically a lot of the scholars, when I was reading through this, felt like maybe he was writing this after his son Absalom had taken over the throne and kicked dad out of town, and he had to run for his life and hide out in the wilderness in 2 Samuel. It's possible, but I think more likely it's not so much a geographical reference, I'm at the ends of the earth, it's maybe more of a spiritual reference, meaning I just feel like I'm as far away from God as I could possibly be in this moment. I just feel like I'm far away. I'm lost out here. God, would you please hear my prayer? I know I'm praying from a long ways away, but Lord, would you please hear what I'm saying? Notice David doesn't say, I'm going to give up on you or I deny that you love me, but would you please listen, Lord? Hear my cry. And then he says, my heart grows faint. My heart grows faint. I can't do this. You know, being a Christian is not a good luck charm for feeling good all the time or always being full of energy and life and, yeah, drive. That's, that's not what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian is following the Lord, trusting in the Lord in spite of how I might feel in that particular moment. There's a verse in Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 9. It says, let us not become weary. Let us not lose heart, depending on your translation, in doing good. For the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. You ever felt like giving up on your Christian walk, maybe, or your Christian ministry? Just feel like things aren't happening right now. I'm losing heart, Lord. That was David at this particular time. He's at the end of himself, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So where do you go in those situations? And I love this. At the end of verse 2, I'll tell you where I'm going to go, David says. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. David would have had the opportunity to see a lot of rocks out in his wilderness wanderings, probably used a lot of them to hide from his enemy, Saul, Later on, Absalom, his own son, Absalom was chasing him. So David understood what it meant to use a rock as a refuge or a hiding place from his enemy. Now, there's a picture, if you want to shoot that up there, Ethan. You're probably going, okay, that's just kind of an ugly rock out in the middle of nowhere. It is. But there's a story behind this rock. Um, there's a place Patty and I had a friend who lived down in Klamath Falls, and he took us one day and we went just over the border into California. and there's a, Nash, a kind of a park there that tells the story. And he, let me give you a little story of what, what, why this is significant. It's called Captain Jack's Stronghold. Captain Jack's Stronghold, named for the Modoc chief, Captain Jack is part of Lava Beds National Monument. Again, it's just over the border south of Klamath Falls. During the Modoc War, Captain Jack's band settled here following the Battle of Lost River. With only 53 warriors and numerous women and children in their band of about 160, they held off for several months a United States Army force, outnumbering them by as much as 10 to one. And this is actually one of the caves that he would have hidden in. There's a whole area that looks just like that. And they used this fortress to evade the United States Army that was chasing them, trying to find them. The Modocs used the lava beds as a defensive stronghold because of the rough terrain, rocks that could be used in fortification and irregular pathways to evade pursuers. So, for quite a period of time, They hid, they were able to evade their pursuers, but they eventually were captured, and Captain Jack and some of the leaders of his tribe were killed by the United States Army, and kind of a sad story, but this is what David's kind of referring when he speaks of a rock. He knew rocks, but he says, I need more than a rock. I need a rock that's higher than I, Lord. God is called a rock 33 times in Scripture, 20 times in, in the book of Psalms alone. So, but there's three things about this rock that David says. Number one, I need it. I can't do this on my own. I need this rock for security. Number two, the rock is higher. It's above him. He's the king. People are looking to him. He's about as high up the ladder of the social ladder as you can get on this side of heaven, but even I, David says, as king, need a rock that's higher than I. Way beyond my wisdom, it's way beyond my ability in this, at this time, and he needs God to lead him there. Did you catch that? God, not only do I need the rock that's higher than I, but I need some help even getting there. I need your leading by the Holy Spirit. Would you lead me to yourself at this point? Christ is our rock. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that I wanted to read that talks about Christ being the rock. Here's what it says. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, he's speaking of the Jewish people, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea, he's speaking of the Red Sea and the crossing by the people of Israel. They were all baptized into Moses in in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Hmm. Paul says, I want you to think back into your history a little bit. Remember the rock in the story where he had to speak to it Later on, Moses struck the rock, was punished, right? But what flew out of that rock was water. That rock was there. It says in a spiritual sort of a sense, Christ was there. Christ is our rock. Christ is higher than us. He's divine. He's God. He has a higher nature. He is sinless. He has a higher character than any of us, and he's seated at the right hand of God. He has a higher power and authority than any of us. He is our rock that we can go to. And I love that. Where do I go when I am at the ends of the earth? When I'm crying out, I go to him. I go to Christ because he's higher than me. David moves on in verses three to five to express confidence in God. He starts by pleading, for protection, now he's going to express confidence in God. Look what he says in verses 3 through 5 here. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. For you have been, God. Past experience gives present confidence and faith. God, you've been there. I remember when I was a shepherd, God, and you helped me with the bear and the lion. And then later on, when I stood before Goliath, and he's calling out at the armies of God and saying, where are you, God? I was able to stand against him because you had been with me. Who you were in the past has helped me have confidence and faith in the present. You have been. And he's going to use more metaphors. You're the rock. That's higher than I. But he's going to give us four more of these metaphors. The first one is my refuge. You have been, God, my refuge. Chapter 57, I preached on this. Lord, you are my refuge in Psalm 57.1. You are the one that I go to for safety. You are a mighty fortress, God. Martin Luther said that, right? We sang that. It's a beautiful. And he hid out. I don't know if you remember the picture that I showed of that castle where he literally hid out for 10 months and where God was with him in a very powerful way and where he wrote the Bible and he translated it into the German language so the people could have God's word that was a refuge. He experienced that. God, you are my strong tower. Wow. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a fortified, strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they're safe. Isn't that great? You see, on walls in ancient fortifications, there's the walls, and then in the corners, there would be these strong citadels or towers if the walls were to, be, were to, for whatever reason or another, fall or to be breached, people could run to these citadels or these strong towers and be safe and be secure. And that's what David is referring to. God, you are that strong tower in my life. But he moves on in verse 4 in a little bit different direction. Look what he says in verse 4 here. You're not only my refuge, my strong tower that provide that safety and security, God, but I long to dwell in your tent forever. I long to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. We're talking on a whole different dimension here. Long to dwell in your tent. There's two possible meanings with this. And the commentaries went two different directions with it and they're both probably valid. The first one is, Maybe David's speaking in the sense of he's this sojourner, this wanderer, and there is this tent where God welcomes him in, shows hospitality and security, and he's welcome in the tent of God, and he's enjoying relationship with God. That's very possible. But I think it maybe goes a step further with that, and referring to another kind of a tent, if you want to show the picture up there. The other Possible meaning of this idea of tent would be the tabernacle. That would have been a part of Israel's history here in David's time and prior. This is an actual model that is over somewhere in Israel today. They've kind of set up a model of the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a dwelling of God that went with the people until the temple was built later under Solomon but this idea of God, I long to dwell in your tabernacle and worship. It's kind of interesting. The word dwell actually is tabernacle. When John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. This was the tabernacle. When Jesus came in the flesh, he dwelt among us, but that, the presence of God, just like in their day in the tabernacle existed, this is the presence of God amongst men. He took on flesh, he dwelt, he tabernacled amongst us. So the idea David saying, I want to be with you, worshiping you in your tabernacle, literally your tent, if you will. So it's a very possible that that is where he was going with that. Then he says, I wanna seek refuge in the shelter of your wings. Few chapters back, we talked about this. This is a reference that occurs many times in the book of Psalms, it's the idea of a mother hen. Again, there's two possible meanings here. One is a mother hen covering her children from predators and gathering the chicks under the wing. Jesus used this reference when he was coming into Jerusalem and he wept over the city and he says, I would love to draw the people and gather you under my wings but you were not willing, he says. He uses this imagery under the protection of a wing and so a mother bird protecting her young, her chicks from predators, that's possible but maybe there's other wings that are referenced here and if you wanna shoot this picture up, in the tabernacle, In the most holy place in the tabernacle, later in the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant, and the wings of the two cherubim angels were on top of on the lid, which was called the mercy seat of this piece of furniture that was there. This was where God dwelt. This is where once a year the priest would enter the most holy place and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. It's possible David is saying, God, I want to dwell under those wings. I want to come to your mercy seat. I'm reaching out here, God, for your mercy and your grace. Would you please cover me? in that so there's two possible meanings here it's interesting with the progression of these four metaphors we go from kind of the impersonal rock strong tower tent covering with wings it becomes more and more personal as it moves on God you're not just a refuge out there a rock you are I'm with you in relationship in your tent under your wings God With the tent and wing images, David might be referring to worship, returning to temple worship and being with God. So much better, David says, safety's one thing, and he's praying for that, but God, what I need more than safety right now is you. I need to be in relationship with you. I need to be in worship with you in your tent. Verse 5, David says, you have heard, there it is again, past God I know you've heard me so I know you're listening now you have heard my vows David the vows there might be referring to the vows that he made to God when he became king that he would uphold the office of king maybe those are the vows that he's referring to maybe he's referring to the vows that he would have made in sacrifice it was common in those days when offering a sacrifice to God to make vows to God David says I've made vows to you, God. You've heard them. I know you're listening. You know, vows are important. In our culture, and I'm thinking in terms of marriage vows right now, I don't know if they're real important. So I wanted to read this humorous example just to kind of lighten it up a little bit. I thought it was good. I recently heard of a wedding where the groom pulled the pastor aside and made him an offer. As a person who does a lot of weddings, I'm like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Look, I'll give you hundred bucks if you'll change the wedding vows. Okay, hmm, interesting. When you get to me and the part where I'm to promise, to love, honor, obey, I'd appreciate it if you just leave that part out, the groom says. He gave me a hundred dollar bill and walked away. Okay. The day of the wedding, the bride and groom were in front of the pastor and were to that part of the ceremony where the vows are exchanged. When it came time for the groom's vows, the pastor looked at the young man and said, Will you promise to bow down before her, obey her every command and wish, serve her breakfast and bed every morning of your life, and swear eternally before God and your lovely life that you will never ever look at another woman as long as you both shall live? The groom gulped. Looked around and said in a tiny voice, yes. Then he leaned in and asked, what happened? I thought we had a deal. So the pastor gave him back his $100 and told him that she had made a better offer. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. got to him first with a better offer. I love that. I just, sorry I had to share that. But you know, vows are important to each other, but they're important to God. God. When we say something to God, it's a vow. We need to carry through on what we say. Thomas Fuller once said, vows made in storms are often forgotten in a calm. Sometimes in the middle of a storm, we're promising everything, right, a vow. God, I'll do whatever in the storm, but we get to the calm and it's like, I'm good. And we forget what maybe we had promised back there, and we need to be careful of that because our vows are important to God. God, would you please protect me, verse 1-2. Okay, God, I'm confident in you. You are my rock. You are my strong tower. I am going to enjoy being with you in your tent forever. I am going to be under the shadow of your wings. So he expresses confidence, but now he goes back to a prayer for protection in verses six and seven. Please, Lord, increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. He goes from David's plea of, Lord, help me. (laughs) I cry out to you to the king cries out to you. Now, it's one and the same person, but David says, I was speaking as myself over here. Now I'm stepping up to you, God, and pleading to you as the king on behalf of your people. Would you please prolong and increase my days? As God's king, the prolonged days of a king meant the well-being of the people. It's like in Britain when they say, God save the queen. What they're really saying is God's blessing on us if the queen is alive. We enjoy blessing under her queenship. It's kind of that same idea of the people are blessed if the king is there. Lord, would you please increase my days? He made this request not because he thought highly of himself but because he thought highly of God and knew that God had promised this Second Samuel 7, verse 16. This is a promise made to David, the Davidic covenant between God and him. Here's what it says. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, you're not gonna live forever, but your throne, your kingdom will in the Messiah in me, in Christ. What an incredible promise, and what David is saying, God, I know you're a promise keeper. I'm calling on you to keep your promise. First request, increase my day. Second request, may I be enthroned in your presence forever. This is not just a king that David's talking about here. This is the Messiah. This is God. Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You're there, God. This is a messianic reference. This is Lord here. Your kingdom, your throne will go on forever. He's referencing the Messiah. I think there's also for us There's a reference here to our position in Christ. I wanted to show this passage, Ephesians 2, that speaks of who we are in Christ. He is enthroned forever. Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, here's what's true of us. Look what it says in Ephesians 2. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Wow. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Because of our relationship with him, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we are seated in the heavenlies. That's a positional truth. We're not there yet, but in a sense we are in Christ. Wow, I want you to think about that one. It's a promise of God that one day we're going to be there, but it's already true because we are in Christ. And there's going to be a day where we're going to be a trophy showing off His grace in our lives. We're going to be there for all eternity showing God's grace and kindness towards us. That's just a beautiful reminder. Lord, would you increase my days? Would you... Help me to be enthroned in God's presence forever. And then I like this one. Would you appoint your love and faithfulness to protect your king? Love and faithfulness. These are bound together at the hip. I mentioned this the other day. God's love, God's faithfulness are a combined thing. You can't say I love you and not be faithful to somebody. Those two words are forever bound. Now these two words, what are they? said. Hesed, the steadfast, covenant, enduring, for all eternity love of God. He's promised it, he's carrying it through. It's based on a promise, it's based on who he is, not on what we do. We bring nothing to this. It's his love, Hesed. That's that beautiful Hebrew word that occurs throughout Scripture. The second word is emet. Now, different translations go different directions with this, some of, some of them say truth, some say faithfulness here, and they're really both good words, I believe, good translations. The word emet is really three letters in Hebrew, and if you read it from right to left, and that's how they do Hebrew, that must be really confusing I don't. for us. If you studied Hebrew, I know, Phil, you've studied some Hebrew. Learning to think right to left is just weird, but that's how they did things. There's three letters. The first letter is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second letter is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the third letter is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So basically what it's saying there, it's, it's the first, middle, and last. Your truth or your faithfulness, God, encompasses all things. It endures from beginning to end. It's there at the beginning. It's there in the middle. It's there at the end. Isn't that a beautiful way to, to say it, God, you're there, you're faithful from the beginning to the end. What did Jesus say about himself in the New Testament? Greek, alpha, omega, beginning, end. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the beginning, I am the end. I encompass all things. Eter- I am eternal, I am God. That's what he was saying, but it's that same idea. God, may your love, may your faithfulness serve as two guards as I sit on the throne, I want your love and your faithfulness posted on either side of me, Lord. That's what I, that's what I need. Now there's a final expression of confidence in verse 8. He's going to end on this note. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. The word vow is brought up again. It's like a bookend. Verse 5 the final verse. It's like bookends on this chapter a little bit. I I made vows to you, God. Verse 8, I'm fulfilling my vows to you, God. I said I'd do something in verse 5. I'm doing it in verse 8. I'm following through. So David is just finishing this up, the expression of confidence that he has. Because God kept his vow, I'm going to keep my vow to God. And the word ever and day after day, I will ever sing in praise of your name. Fulfill my vows day after day. So the word ever carries to mind eternal. It's out there. It goes on forever. But there's the day-to-day element. It's kind of like with our salvation. When we vowed to God that we're going to follow him and let him be the Savior, Lord and Savior of our life, when we made that commitment, that was a vow that's good for eternity. That's out there. But there's the day-to-day, following Him, faithfully serving Him, obeying Him, day after day after day. I'm going to fulfill my vow to You, Lord. I'm going to be obedient to You. What You say, I'm going to follow. And that is my commitment to You. There's a poem that George Herbert said. It says, Surely thy sweet and wondrous love shall measure all my days, and as it never shall remove so neither shall my praise. You're there, God. Your love and your faithfulness. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Spurgeon had a great quote on this. Let me just conclude with this before we go to communion. Christ is a rock, Spurgeon said, not a mound that is raised by man, and that rock shall stand forever. And if I get on it, There's no fear that the rock will shake. I may shake on it, but it will never shake under me. And if my enemies try to attack me, I can hide myself in the clefts of the rock. There it is. You're my fortress, God. Where they cannot reach me. And though 10,000 ages roll away and many a stone is moved from its place, this rock shall abide. That's our Christ. That is our rock. Lord, lead us to your tent. Lead us to your mercy seat. You know, I'm going to ask the men to come forward for communion right now. I want you to think of it in this sense. The cross is our mercy seat. It's where blood was shed for our sins. And I'm going to talk a little bit more specific on that um, as I do communion. Communion.